Well, what a delight it is to be back yet once again with this beloved church, First Baptist Church of Amarillo. I can say with the Apostle Paul, I thank God on every memory of you and to be here with my friend and your esteemed pastor, Dr. Howie Batson, makes that even more special. <laughs> they say it takes uh, 37,000 people to keep it running. Something like 1.59 billion people use it. I, I don't know how they get to that number, but every minute 510,000 people are possessed to write something there. 83 million people are supposed to be fakes, posers. That is, they're not who they say they are. Uh, most of you are ahead of me if you read the title of the sermon. <laughs> the apostolic Facebook. I, like some of you, I was a little late getting there. Most of you here were probably ahead of me, but some guru said I needed to be there since I'm a hit-and-run preacher. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got there pretty soon. Very quickly, I had 5,000 friends, but I, I found out, or I'll be one of the situations was that uh, people were using MySpace to argue with other people I didn't know about everything from recipes to the mayor of New York. <laughs> I felt a little like a boxing promoter uh, who gave a ring for people to have fights that I didn't even know. <laughs> then I found out that you can uh, friend and unfriend people. I was thankful for that. <laughs> you could block people and in case you woke at 3 a.m. and read something that somebody you don't even know irritated you and wrote something the next morning you wish you hadn't, you can even edit that. <laughs> but then it struck me, reading the last words that Paul wrote. What if it had been an apostolic Facebook? <laughs> you know, when the, when the Philippians sent Epaphroditus with that offering to Paul, hadn't seen him in 10 years, and they brought it to his house arrest in Rome. He wouldn't have had to send a, a letter back. He could have just uh, taken a selfie with the gift. You know? <laughs> or when he and Peter duked it out at the Jerusalem council, they could have put on a happy face, and, <laughs> and there they'd been on faith. What if there'd been apostolic Facebook? Well, I'd understand this about some of the people that, that, that you read about a moment ago. Here's Demas. <laughs> I'm sure when Demas ran off to Thessalonica, the first thing he did was unfriend Paul. <laughs> Demas didn't want Paul to see what was happening in Thessalonica. You've heard about Thessalonica, you know. Uh, what happens there stays there. <laughs> or here's Mark, John Mark went AWOL on the first missionary journey when, when, when they were on Cyprus with his uncle Barnabas, everything was good. But when they went to Turkey, he said, I'm going home. I'm sure Paul unfriended Mark. This character, Alexander the coppersmith, what a way to get your name in the Bible. <laughs> I imagine Paul blocked him. In fact, he wrote Timothy and said, you block him too. He won't do you any good. And then there was a group. You know how there are groups on Facebook. It's Aquila, Priscilla, Luke, Timothy. I expect that's how Paul and Mark kept up with one another on Priscilla's page. 
finding out what was going on. Wouldn't it be odd if there had been an apostolic Facebook? I know that's an anachronism, but could have, would have, be interesting. If you look at it closely, there are two or three things that uh, I've learned thinking in that terms. First of all, you learn that even the best of Jesus' followers need other Jesus' followers. Here, here's, a, here's the apostle writing these infinitely sad words. You see them in verse 16. They're laden with pathos, the chill of winters on them. At my first defense, no one supported me. Those are sad words. If you'd been able to look at a picture of Paul and you knew him well, you could have detected it in the lines of his face. When I stood before Nero for the first time, no one supported me. Look at that picture. Playing around his apostolic eyes, the dust of a hundred Roman roads on his sandals, nobody stood with him. Now, it didn't start that way. Oh, after that famous ship voyage to Rome, read about it at the end of Acts, after that shipwreck on Malta, oh, he caught another boat to the, to the port of Rome. It's kind of like Galveston is to Houston, Puteoli. They came out to see him. I wonder if somebody didn't bring a copy of Romans. You're Paul. Would you sign this right here? They wanted to get their picture with him and post it. In fact, even when he was under house arrest, kind of wearing an ankle bracelet so he couldn't get out, the rabbis came to see him. But by this time... Everybody's melted away. Oh, some of them couldn't get there. Lydia was too far off. That Philippian jailer, he was over an ocean away. He tells us where he'd left some of his other friends. Timothy's over, but absolutely alone. Read at the book of Acts. He'd healed Publius's father from fever and dysentery. Why wasn't he there? Why wasn't anybody there? Reminds you a little bit of Calvary, doesn't it? Did you ever think about that when they were mocking Jesus? If you're the Son of God, come down. Why didn't anybody show up? <laughs> Where was Bartimaeus? He was just down the road. Where was Nicodemus who came to him at night? At that cross, even he didn't stand there. Where was that man who'd been lame 37 years at the pool of the soul? Nobody was there with him. Must be lonely to have your picture on apostolic Facebook that way. <laughs> There's an old saying, no one is a, is a hero to his, his uh, butler. <laughs> Not quite sure who said that. Hegel said that's because a hero's a hero and the butler's a butler. But sometimes what is precious and saintly can become commonplace. You go to Vienna, one of the places you go time after time is where Mozart lived. I think he lived 16 different places because they kept kicking him out because he bothered people composing. There are people today who pay a million dollars to be able to hear Mozart at a piano composing. Paul had become commonplace to them. And in that commonplace, he needed somebody to stand with him. I know it says the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, but come close to me. Even the best followers Jesus has 
need other Jesus followers with them. One of my favorite places on this planet is over the Golden Gate Bridge. You turn to the left and you go down by the sea to the Muir Woods, named for John Wood, the, John Muir, the great uh, uh, naturalist. And, and there you see those thousand-year-old redwood trees, coastal redwoods. Interesting thing about them, you never find one of them alone. You only find them in copses of trees just like them. You'd think it because their roots were so deep, but really it's because their roots are so intertwined, they hold one another up. This thing of following Jesus is not a privatized maverick faith. The very best among us need the others among us in order to make it in the Christian life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, April 9th, 1945, hung in that squalid little concentration camp in his book, Life Together, says, sometimes the Christ in me is weaker than the Christ in your words, and I need your words because that time the Christ in you is stronger. We can learn from this apostolic Facebook that sometimes the best among, you, did you see how he wrote it? He said, speed to come to me. That's literally what the word is. Come to me quickly, come before winter. From November until spring, the Mediterranean was not navigable because it was too cold and he's urging his mentee, I need you, Timothy. Get here as quickly as you can. You're gonna find that we need one another from apostolic Facebook, but then that's not all. You see the various outcomes for people as they respond to the call of Christ. In these 17 names in 13 verses, the number of picture frames. Joanne and I were several years ago in Florence in one of those art museums in that storied city and they had a kind of a gimmick, a trick. After you looked at these priceless Italian masterpieces in a museum, at the very end of them, there was a false wall, a, a fake facade with a golden frame. And as a kind of a trick, you could run, get behind that, and get your face as if you were a masterpiece <laughs> in that gilded frame. There's some frames here. I wonder if any of us could see our face in those frames. Demas. Demas, Paul says, has forsaken me, having loved the world of the now. What a way to get your name in the book. Over in Colossians, right by here, and in Philemon, he's with Paul. There in that book of Philemon, fellow servant along with Luke, in Colossians, my fellow servant, my synergistic co-worker. But now, in one of the last things Paul wrote, Demas has forsaken me, having loved the world of the now. <laughs> Demas has gone over to Thessalonica. Oh, I'm sure that young man Demas enjoyed everything Thessalonica had to offer. There were the baths. 
the theaters, the clubs, the Coliseum, the race courses. I'm sure for a while, Demas was a blaze of energy. But then at night, when there was no ambient light, by the moonlight and the lamplight, when it all got quiet, Demas had to remember. He remembered that he left the man who led him back under house arrest in Rome. Oh, if you'd seen Demas for a while, it looked like living. I don't think it surprised everybody up here. Remember the guy that got buried in his Cadillac? <laughs> yeah, lowered down into the ground. Somebody was standing there and said, man, that's living. <laughs> no. <laughs> Demas had to live with the fact that his footprints were going the other day. Robert Burns, that uh, sweet, romantic Scots poet, who fought his own demons, says, pleasures are like poppies spread. You, you seize the flower and the bloom is shed, or like a snowflake fallen on a river, a moment white, then gone forever. On the apostolic Facebook, Demas leaves footprints. I saw the other day from 50 years ago, where my, <laughs> some of my family members, remember, in wet, I don't know if they still do it or not, in wet cement, put footprints and handprints. The footprint of Demas for 2,000 years nearly has been pointed away from the apostle. What a way to leave your face in the picture frame. But here's another frame. Here's Mark. <laughs> ah, Mark, probably the author of the gospel, Mark, probably from a wealthy family in Jerusalem. Mark, eager to go on the first missionary journey with his uncle Barnabas. There when they were on Cyprus, it was a good place to be. Oh, it's good to be on Cyprus with Barnabas. Barnabas was connected on Cyprus, but when they got to Turkey, Mark did go AWOL. It's a sad story. I'm sure that was when Paul unfriended Mark. When Mark went back home, I think he was... He was grieved when he heard about the rest of that first journey and second journey and the planting of churches. But look, if you look in this frame, among the last things the great apostle who wrote half the books in the New Testament wrote was, bring Mark. He's profitable for me. What do you think happened? I think somewhere... Paul believed in Mark more than Mark believed in Mark. And he let him know, you can come back. Sergeant Kierkegaard was that melancholy Dane. It won't cheer you up to read some of what he wrote. But My favorite book of his is The Sickness Unto Death. And he says, the sickness that's unto death is only one, and it is despair. Despair means buying into the lie that you cannot come back. Good news of the gospel is you can come back at any time. And some come back because somebody else believes you can come back. Here or beyond here this morning, there's one somebody listening to me and the reason you're in the faith is because somebody believed you could come back. 
One of the beloved musicals on the whole planet, it works in all kinds of cultures, is Les Miserables. You may have seen it or seen the movie that Jean Valjean steals some bread, defeat a starving family member, goes to a French jail for 19 years, gets out bitter as a lemon, spends the night with a bishop, pays him back by stealing the bishop's ecclesiastical silver, gets caught the next day, brought back to the bishop. You remember the story? <laughs> the bishop says, oh, John, you forgot to take some of the silver I gave you. <laughs> and then whispers to him, God has saved you. The bishop believed in John. When John didn't believe in himself, and he grew up to what was expected of him. I wonder, I wonder if anybody here today could see your face in that frame. <laughs> see your face in the frame that you can come back because somebody else believes you can. But then here's Luke. <laughs> there he is, Luke. Unlike Demas, he didn't live the world. In fact, he joined Paul at Troas and never left. He's there for the rest of the book of Acts. Goes back with Paul there at Caesarea. On that, on that shipwreck on Malta, Luke. Luke, the one who seemed never to have left. You know, that's the best frame uh, to be in. I think about Luke, I think about somebody like Mrs. Ruth Bell Graham, Mrs. Billy Graham. The interesting thing she said, she, she said all of her life, she couldn't remember a time when Jesus wasn't real. I know my friend Russell H. Dilday Jr., former president of Southwestern Seminary, said when he was growing up in Wichita Falls, Jesus seemed to be so real in their family that he actually thought he might live there somewhere. My maternal grandmother was like that. She walked around the house up in Gainesville, Texas, singing to Jesus, talking to Jesus. When I was a little boy, I wasn't sure that wasn't where he lived. <laughs> it's best to be a Luke. When I was in seminary, uh, they used to bring in some dramatic speakers who were ministers, but they had these dramatic testimonies. They'd either gone to prison or knocked off a convenience store or got in trouble somehow. And the rest of us didn't have those dramatic testimonies. You know, we got saved when we were eight and called to preach when we were 16. And every now and then one of us would stumble and somebody would cynically say, well, he's out building a testimony so he can come back here. <laughs> it's best to be a Luke. And I know what one somebody here is thinking. Well, I've blown that. I've tried Demas and I've tried Mark. You know, here's the good news. Any day of your life, you can say from today on, I'm going to be a Luke, and I'm going to be faithful. Another thing, and I'll sit down. You look over this apostolic Facebook, and you find out that at the end, it's individuals that matter. Now, here's the last thing the great apostle would write. And in these verses, 13, there are 17 names. Now, if I'd been Paul, I, I, I might have, in the last thing I wrote, said, <clears throat> uh, before I put the pen down, let me review some of my more famous sermons. <laughs> there was that day on Mars Hill when I amazed the intellectuals. Our, 
I tried to preach in the riot at the theater of Ephesus. The Asiarchs wouldn't let me, or there in Jerusalem. Even in Hebrew, I preached before they sent me to jail. I might have wanted to review some of my great sermons, or <laughs> he might have said, <clears throat> after all, I did write Romans, and let me give you the cliff note version. <laughs> but you know he didn't do that. What he did was write a list of names. The chill of winter is on him. The reptile of time is coiled around him, and he knows his time is short. He said that earlier in this chapter. But what he does is remember individuals. Interesting thing. You know, some of us had the privilege to uh, uh, speak here and there. I, I, I've been preaching uh, 54 years, started when I was two. No, no not really. But I... <coughs> By God's grace, he's opened up some doors at conventions and alliances and so forth to preach. Can I just tell you the unvarnished truth about that? When I think about it now, it just makes me tired. Do you know what I remember? I remember in the autumn of ministry, faithful individuals. I remember in my pastorate as a junior at Baylor in the poorest neighborhood of Waco, they called me one day and said, Jack, Jack's having a fit. I didn't know Jack and didn't know what a fit was, but I went a block away in the worst slum in Waco and there was a 25-year-old and when I came to the screened-in back porch, he just broke a dinner plate over his head. Jack was the first person I led to Christ as a pastor. I prayed with him, sat with him, pulled him out of bars on South 3rd Street, helped him get a job. I remember Jack. Across from Baylor, where I serve now, suddenly there's every franchise known to humanity. I look behind in and out Burger, but I don't see that. I see a church bus route 50 years ago where I'd knock on doors on Saturdays and invite people to ride the church bus to my little pastorate. And where that franchise is, there used to be a muddy back alley. <laughs> and I'd go up it to talk to a little boy and one day sat down on the back porch with him and told him about Jesus. And he rode the bus the next Sunday and confessed faith in Christ. I remember him. I remember C.T. Sharp, my deacon chair at Acton Baptist Church near Lake Granbury. Eighty years old, a fourth grade education, the wisest man I ever knew. By turns, he'd been a professional boxer, a rancher, a pastry chef, a mortician. He'd done a little bit of everything. I remember him. When Paul came... In the very winter of ministry, what he remembered were these people. But you know what was really important was not so much he remembered that, that they remembered him, that he remembered them. They got in the book. Can you imagine that? There were a hundred million people around the Mediterranean basin. That was the Roman Empire. They lived and they died in a suffocating anonymity with a brief lifespan. But these folks got their name in the book. Now, not just the marquee players like Timothy and Luke and Priscilla, although isn't it interesting that a million 
boys would be named Timothy and Luke and girls Priscilla because they followed this man who followed Jesus. But what's even more interesting than that to me is right here in the same Bible where those titanic figures begin it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Here are these biblical names that never caught on. Pudens, <laughs> Eubulus. I don't think I ever met one of them. <laughs> and yet, they got in the same book with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Sometimes people say, how do I get significance? Let me tell you where you don't get it. You don't go it by, by going down to the bookstore and reading self-help books. That's like casting the, anchoring the boat by casting the anchor on the deck. <laughs> you get significance by getting on this list. And incidentally, it is an open list. <laughs> you know, every November where I work, they say it's time for open enrollment, but you got to do it in November. <laughs> Not here. It's an open list. Could I say this? <laughs> On Route 3, Jacksboro, my, my, my grandfather was the deacon song leader. Every, they had church once a, once a month, and every Sunday, once a month, I played the piano as a 12-year-old, and they sang the same 1893 gospel song. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And do you know that is still an open list to this very morning? The last, the least, and the littlest can get your name on this book. And I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, I, I, I could never be on a list like that. Look at the last word in the book. The last word Paul wrote was grace to you. The last word Peter wrote in 2 Peter was, you can grow in grace. And when John, the other marquee Peter, wrote the last words in your New Testament, said, grace to you. And that's why you can be on the list. Lord, Holy Spirit, speak to us now. I pray that one somebody trying to make it alone would say, I need others. That one somebody who's gone away like Demas might believe, I can come back and be a John Mark. And may somebody get on the list today. In Jesus' name.